Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? This week, we're taking another dive back into the In Defense of Plants podcast library to dig up a conversation that really helped me see mutualisms in a new light. And it's timely because I've recently been doing some traveling and come across some yuccas flowering. And for the first time in my life, I have seen a yucca moth inside a yucca flower. It is very exciting. And it reminded me of this conversation I had with Dr. Carrie Seagraves back in July of 2019. Dr. Seagraves studies, among other things, one of the most intentional pollination syndromes on the planet. And it's a mutualism that blew my mind to learn about, and I hope it blows yours as well. And again, makes you look at the world of plants and insects in a whole new way. She studies the relationships between yucca and yucca moths, and I'm not going to spoil any of the fun. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed having it, and it's one I am really excited to bring back, especially for all of the new ears that this show has been reaching since 2019. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Carrie Seagraves. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Carrie Seagraves, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How about you tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? All right, well, I'm a faculty member in biology at Syracuse University, and I do a lot of things, but mostly I teach courses here, and then I also uh, conduct uh, research on interactions between species. Right on. And obviously, this is a plant podcast, so I'm guessing at least some of those species are plants, correct? <laughs> yeah, I actually study a lot of things, but plants are one of the key things. Awesome. And so what brought you to where you're at today, or at least what got you interested in the kinds of questions you like to ask about uh, coevolution among species and interactions? I mean, were you more of an animal person, more of a plant person growing up? How did this all come about? Yeah, you know, I, I think I have to go all the way back to high school when I took a course in ecology. It was a really unusual class where we essentially spent the latter part of our day traveling to the local river and collecting stuff. So we'd collect plants and insects and fish, and we'd talk about, you know, basic ecological concepts. And that's where I sort of started and became interested actually mostly in plants and insects. It was from there I went on to college and decided to get a degree in biology and had a research opportunity that really spurred me into what I'm doing today. That's really cool. So this is something that sort of hit early and stuck with you, which is, you know, I mean, a lot of people flounder a little bit trying to figure out what's going on, but it's those special moments where you have an incident or a class per se that really kind of ingrains it in you and it just sticks with you ever since. So that's that's really cool that it was able to, you know, be shoehorned into a, an actual career studying these sorts of interactions. Yeah, you know, I never would have dreamed it. I was always an outdoorsy kind of kid, and I loved walking in the forests. And, you know, I grew up in sort of a rural place in eastern Washington state, I should say, mm-hmm. and um, hanging out with my grandparents in the woods and stuff like that, that just sort of, you know, I think I had already had a strong love for nature. But then when I started learning about ecology, I realized that I could actually probably do this for a living. Yeah, and how many people really hear the word ecology in any in-depth context before they get to, say, college? It's not something you hear about in 
general high school curricula. <laughs> no, no, I don't think that, you know, it's in, in an introductory biology sort of lesson, but you're, you're going to hear about global climate change right now and a few other things, but not, not to the context, in the context that we actually had. Right on. So I first learned about your research through the lens of yucca, a plant that many listeners will probably be familiar with, or in fact, probably growing in their own landscapes. Um, you know, when did you first learn of this group, this genus of plants? And uh, I guess maybe it was through the other half of this story. Uh, it could have been the first. What was your introduction to the system? <laughs> the system itself came later, although I was aware of the plants for the same reason that you mentioned that many of the listeners might be in the sense that my my parents had some planted in their gardens and they actually disliked the plants because they would spread really quickly and basically take over the flower bed. And so um, we often had conversations about how to get rid of them. And I think it's kind of funny that I study them now, but <laughs> Um, coming around to your question, I, it was in an undergraduate evolution course where I learned about this interaction for the first time. It's a actually a textbook example of mutually beneficial interactions between species. So uh, what yucca's, yucca pollination basically is pretty well known. Yeah, it's one of those things where, again, because they're such popular plants, there are really good examples of, of how to teach this to someone because of the interdependency of the yucca and its pollinator, which we'll get into in a little bit more detail. But it is kind of neat to think about this idea of plant blindness and how the public views the plant world is kind of either boring, static, or might as well just not exist outside of being this green backdrop. But here's a plant with a fascinating pollination mechanism syndrome, really, uh, that couldn't exist without a moth and vice versa, that is often in our own backyards. This is something people can tangibly go out and see somewhere in their neighborhood. Exactly. And, you know, you, you miss it because it happens at night. So who, who goes out and looks at their flowers at night? Nobody. <laughs> uh, there, there might be a few listeners. No, <laughs> I do, but I understand what you're trying to say. Yeah, it's like that night shift. Everyone forgets it exists. Exactly. <laughs> No, that's funny. So, okay, let's get into it. There's, we've, we've mentioned this as a textbook example of co-evolutionary mechanisms. There's something strange going on with yuccas and moths. What is it? So um, the, the most unique aspect of this is that the moths are not accidental pollinators. They're purposeful ones. So we call it active pollination. And the moths, they actually have special structures. They're extra mouth parts that no other moth or butterfly has. And they use these to purposefully collect pollen from one flower. They fly to another plant, and then they use that pollen to purposefully pollinate the, the next plant. Oh, geez. And, and that's so outlandish if you really stop and think about it, is most pollination, I'm assuming is accidental or happenstance because of either reward systems or trickery. But this is an actual, like, picking up pollen and, and doing this on purpose. And, and like, as you mentioned, this moth has evolved specialized structures to do this. This is not accidental or coincidence. This is directed. And is this something that's widespread among plants and, and their pollinators? Or is this pretty localized to a specific sets of syndromes? Yeah, so so active pollination has only evolved um, four times that we're aware of. It's, it, that That's a loose number, and four systems, I should say, maybe not four times. So we have uh, three examples with moths and then an example with uh, wasps. So figs are a classic one. Mm. So 
the fig that you eat and many, many other species of figs are purposefully pollinated by a wasp that has little pockets on the side of its body that it uses to store pollen and it flies. The females actually in the species fly to fig. They have Oh, it's this horrible pathway that they have to, like, figs are basically inside-out inflorescences. Mm-hmm. They're really weird. So it looks more like a fruit when you look at the the fig flowers, the inflorescence. And the females have to crawl through this tiny little hole to get inside of there. And then they end their lives inside that fig. But they also do a very similar thing where they, they put pollen onto the flowers. Jeez. And obviously, if we're talking purposeful pollination here, it's not altruistic. They don't believe, <laughs> per se, in the success of this plant, but there's something driving them to do this. So what is the, the, the give and take in this? What's, what's the reason for this purposeful pollination? So, so in the end, the plant is gaining something, right, from all of this. It's getting pollinated, but it has to give up some of its seeds to do so. So what happens is in all of these systems is that the insects are also laying eggs. And those eggs develop into larvae that then feed on some of the seeds. Not all of them, but some. Wow. So this is really a moth or wasp. I mean, in the case of yucca, it's a moth that's purposefully pollinating this so that it can then lay eggs on the style or the ovaries or something. And then the offspring will then feed on that. I mean, that is just mind-blowing when you really stop to think about the intricacies of how something like this might evolve. Yeah, and, you know, it makes these types of systems unique in the sense that they're completely dependent on one another. That's a little unusual, too. So they're called obligate pollination mutualisms, where the plant isn't pollinated by anything else, and the yucca moths only use yuccas, for instance, for laying their eggs and, of course, for pollinating. Right. And there isn't just one species of yucca out there. There are many. So how specific is this? Is it one class of moths doing this, one species, one genus? I mean, is it you find a different moth for every species of yucca that's out there? It's almost one moth species per one yucca species. Oh, my gosh. But it's not quite that specialized. There there are a few moths that have... um, seven up to seven different host plant species so seven different yuccas and we actually have two genera of moths but they're closely related okay so this isn't like uh completely out of left field that two suddenly converged on this strategy no no it's fairly rare that you know such a complex behavior and you know these changes in the morphology or the shape of the the mouth parts and all that, that's highly unusual. So it, it, it would be difficult for that to evolve. <laughs> yeah, un- unusual indeed. And it's, it is curious to think about, you know, specialists in this context, as it often makes organisms more vulnerable, depending on what the background context of the environment and all that's going on. So from your perspective as a scientist, how do you begin to unwrap the complexities of this relationship and try to understand it from like this evolutionary perspective? Because it's it's like what we see today has already happened and, and it's, you know, we don't have a time machine, unfortunately. So what do you do? Yeah. So when we first started working on this system, what we needed to do was to sort out how um, the, both of the partners were related. What were their evolutionary relationships? Who's closely related to whom? And then we could start to map on from that sort of family tree, if you will, 
kind of complicated in the sense that, you know, we have different behaviors, slightly different behaviors in the, the moths. And so if you want to understand how those behaviors evolved, you need to understand the evolutionary relationships of those moths. And then we can also map on who they're using in terms of plants and then, of course, vice versa, you know, what are the traits of the plants and how have those changed with respect to the, the insects that are pollinating them. Right. So by knowing who the partners are, what their evolutionary relationships are, and how maybe some of these key characters or traits or behaviors change from one to another, you can kind of use all of those wonderful like molecular time clock techniques and phylogenies to sort of maybe if I'm understanding this right, like connect the dots towards some sort of logical pathway that this might happen? Right. And our ultimate goals was to understand how, how new species could form in this group. Because, you know, if, if there's a group of plants out there and then they adopt this different pollinator, this, this unique pollinator, why, why do you need more than one species? Or why are there more than one species of pollinator? And why eventually did it become so specialized? Yeah. And so what are you finding? I mean, like, what do these to date, at least I know there's always so many unknowns and uncertainties <laughs> out there. But I mean, <laughs> do you have a grasp? I mean, at this point, is it is it easy to talk about some of these connections and, and how, you know, maybe it might be driving specialization or diversification even? I mean, what what kind of things have we been finding in this? Yeah. So so we're working on a project right now to test ideas about whether it was being a pollinator that made them diversify, the moths in particular. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I know we're talking a little bit more about moths than the plants. That's okay. Um, the plant side of things is still fuzzy. And actually, <laughs> it's it's funny because yuccas can hybridize. And we're starting to learn that the species boundaries in yucca aren't very clear. Oh, geez. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's going to make this a little bit more complicated. But Darn plants. From the moth side, they're, they're only rarely hybridized, and so it's a little easier to, to, to work with and study. But what we've been interested in is whether the, the pollination side of the interaction is causing them to become new species or whether it's the being a parasite of the plant, you know, the, the feeding on seeds part that is causing diversification or new species to form. Hmm. And that's an interesting perspective to take because it gets at this where did it even come in the first place uh, you know how did this come to be and you mentioned the word parasite which in reality if i hear something's eating the seeds and living off of this plant kind of quote unquote rent free although you know pollination is pretty decent pay and rent uh you know this this begs the question again is like how did this begin so in your perspective, at least, or do you have hypotheses at this point as to what this chicken and an egg scenario? Were they pollinators first? Were they parasites first? And then it kind of just rolled on from there? Yeah, I would bet on them being parasites first. And that essentially what happened is if they were feeding on the plants already, that the ones that also pollinated were probably a lot more successful. Ah, okay. So there's probably a spectrum of behaviors there that then, you know... Obviously, it's pretty hard selection if you're eating all of the seeds of the plant you require. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And yeah, yuccas have teeth too. So oh. um, they, yeah, I don't know if we want to get into this or not, but essentially the, the plants themselves have mechanisms to control the moths so they can prevent them from getting too numerous. Uh, yeah, let's get into that. That sounds pretty <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's cool because... 
essentially, I think most plants would probably have this mechanism. So it was probably built into the system from the beginning. But essentially, um, yuccas make a lot of flowers. If you've ever seen them, that's that's part of the reason why they get planted in gardens, right? Is that mm. you know, they can have over 300 flowers on these tall inflorescences, and they're really showy big plants. But the truth of the matter is, while they have all those flowers, they can't keep all of them. Okay. So they're limited in terms of energy and often will drop upwards of 80% of the flowers. Oh, whoa. And so that means that plants can be choosy about which flowers they keep. So obviously they're going to not keep the ones that didn't get pollinated, but among the set that are pollinated, if there's a lot of damage in some flowers, they selectively drop those. And so they can actually detect the damage caused by yucca moth larvae feeding within the flowers and huh. fruit and selectively drop those. So if there are too many larvae, the plant says, no, nope, I'm going to get rid of that. And basically it kills all of the, the larvae within that. So wow. there's fairly strong selection, I think, on the moths to, to you know, kind of hold back a little bit, not lay... <laughs> <laughs> Although I've seen females lay tons of eggs inside of flowers, but the ones that do that are probably not very successful. Yeah, that's a pretty strong uh, penalty to, to incur <laughs> on this uh, greedy, greedy moths. <laughs> yeah, so spread your eggs out. Don't put them all in one basket or flower. <laughs> yeah, look, the analogy applies. But, you know, from the moth's perspective, too, I mean, there's got to be some sort of signaling component to this to make sure that they're not laying, well, you said one female can lay a ton of eggs, but I would assume that if one female lays eggs and then another female comes through, there's got to be ways for them to be able to tell if, if a flower is occupied or not, or do we not know that yet? No, yeah. So let me back up and I'll tell you what a female does when she gets in the flower. So usually they run around the flowers. It looks sort of aimlessly, but they'll basically <laughs> circle around the base. And, you know, we're not really sure what's going on. But sometimes during that that circling behavior that they decide to move on to a new flower. And um, I'm suspicious that it's basically that they are finding or looking for um, scents of other females. And there's some evidence that, that suggests that females actually mark the flowers as they're laying eggs. So after the circling behavior, the next thing they do is they sort of position themselves so they can lay an egg into the flower. And as they do that, they wipe their abdomens along the, the pistil of the, the flower. And they'll lay an egg and then they'll keep wiping their abdomens. And actually my PhD advisor showed that flowers that had um, females basically abdominal extracts painted onto the flowers were less appealing to moths. So they didn't want to lay eggs into them as much as they did flowers that only had water painted on them. Wow. And so it suggests that they're laying down like basically a chemical trail that says, hey, I've been here. Yeah. And again, this isn't altruistic behavior. This is literally just saying, like, my babies need all of this and they've got all of this, so just don't bother. Right, exactly. Or at least hypothetically speaking. Hypothetically, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Wow. So if there are too many eggs, there'll be too many larvae and too much damage. And so the yeah. that's really a, a strong natural selection on the moths against laying so many eggs. Yeah, I probably should have looked this up before we started talking, but it, <laughs> um, there's a lot of yucca species, or at least a, a good amount of them, uh, especially in, in like the southern portions of, of North America here. Do they all do this? Do they all have moths? This, yeah, this pollination syndrome. Um, as far as we're aware, yes. Wow. 
Yeah, and there's also a, a more distant relative, Hespero yucca, that that has one species that does this too. Really? Yeah, and that one's an unusual one. It's not the typical way. It, it has a different moth that actually all all yucca moths are generally white in color, mm-hmm. and that one actually has a yucca moth that's black or speckled, huh. depending on where you go. And they're also diurnal moths. And that one, it's it's a really, it's sort of, it's very different. And I'm not sure, you know, what to make of it yet, but um, <laughs> the flowers are different as well. So the the pollination behaviors right. is at the same time. So, But the fact that this is a shared trait then would suggest, at least to me, that this is something that probably arose early on in this lineage and has just kind of gone through diversification and changes as species change through time. Exactly. And we're starting to realize there are sort of nuanced differences in the the pollination behavior itself. And there are definitely big differences in how and where the females lay eggs in the flowers, depending on what species of yucca is is being used and what species of moth you're looking at. So what are some of these nuances then that that kind of suggests, you know, sort of independent diversification of the system? So, so we have, and I guess you can categorize the moths in terms of how they lay their eggs. Is there's one superficial way that they can do that, where they just kind of dig a small pit in the tissue surface and leave an egg right there, and you can you can see it actually just sticking out of the surface of the tissue of the flower. Mm-hmm. But most of the moths are actually what we would call locule ovipositing species. So they lay eggs that are essentially placed right next to the seeds. So they're buried inside the flower, and that seems to me like a better strategy because they're more protected. Right. The superficial species, they have problems. So they have, <laughs> a lot of those eggs die, and it's at a much higher rate. And I think the, the reason that that might have evolved is because of this plant defense in the sense that when females lay eggs inside of the flowers, they're damaging seeds and basically allowing the plant to register that damage and then flowers, you know, can be dropped from the plants if, if there are too many eggs laid and too many larvae feeding. Right. In a superficial circumstance, the plants can't really detect that damage. And so the females can get away with laying a lot of eggs. Hmm. Whether that was a mechanism that allowed the, the insects to diversify is, you know, up for debate, but I think that it, it may have helped at least. Yeah. It is really curious to think of, you know, sort of the signaling pathways involved in a plant. This is very similar to some of the anti-herbivory signaling, at least letting a plant know something's been munching on it and there's damaged parts to deal with. But on some level, there has to be this this threshold, right? Because otherwise it would penalize too many and then the pollination services would drop off. Is there sort of a magic number or is that completely nebulous at this point? A magic number? How many eggs can you take? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the number is 12. Oh, whoa, really? <laughs> yeah, believe it or not, I can tell you that, yes. <laughs> oh, so, that's awesome. Approximately 12. <laughs> I did not expect to hear a concise, accurate <laughs> number there. Yeah, 12 is a lot, actually, but some of those eggs don't live, so. Yeah. It usually amounts to less. So this, again, I mean, these these are two species that desperately need each other, and, and it seems like you know, this moth, this entire life cycle is cued around the, the short flowering period, and then the larvae obviously live a longer life than the adults in most Lepidopterans. But how long does this whole process take? Is it one season? Do they overwinter? What's it like? Oh, there's another fun story. Oh. Well, 
So, so the moths complete their larval life cycle in the fruit. And then once they're done eating, they drop out of the fruit and then overwinter underground. Mm. So they actually dig down into the soil. It's kind of a uh, magic happens. We're not really sure exactly because <laughs> no one's been able to, to actually, you know, you can sift through the soil underneath the plants, but finding the larvae there is very challenging. So we've actually done some lab experiments where we keep them in what we call rearing chambers, which is just a fancy word for a paint can, a one gallon paint can. <laughs> <laughs> nice. We put them in soil in these cans, and then we close up the cans and bury them at our uh, research garden here on campus. And the next year, we can dig up those cans, and then they'll emerge about the same time that the plants flower here. Wow. So the consequence of having done this experiment where I, I essentially, um, let's see, in 2006 and 2007, we buried a set of cans with larvae that we have not since added to. And... We had moths come out from those cans last year. Wow. Yeah. So, and and we're waiting, anxiously awaiting to see if we'll have a moth come out this year from those. But essentially, they've been trickling out over time. So they could complete their life cycle and become an adult in one year. But it looks like they could wait many, many years. Huh. So there's like a seed bank, right? So we can we can call it the, the moth seed bank of sorts that's sitting out there in the soil. Yeah, and that kind of bleeds into another question I have with considering the specificity of this mutualism and the idea that our climate is changing extremely rapidly. And this means that both organisms have to find suitable habitat in order to prosper. And it's more than just breeding, obviously. It's climate, it's microclimate, humidity, all that stuff. So it would seem like if you know one partner gets messed up, the other partner is screwed. But what you just described here is there's some sort of like I don't know if you want to call it an adaptation, but there's like a, an insurance policy built in with the moths that if yuccas don't flower at the same time or don't flower that year, they're not wasting all of their reproductive effort in one swoop. Right. So having this staggered emergence of moths is probably really helpful in the, particularly the deserts of like the Southwest, right? So yeah. some years yuccas don't flower at all and the moths that come out are doomed. Hmm. But if only a proportion of those come out, then that means that in the following years that more moths can trickle out and at least a female's lineage might be assured. Dang, that's pretty wild. And what are the male moths doing <laughs> throughout this? I mean, I, they're just literally just sperm cases to <laughs> deliver seed. And, yes, they hang out in the flowers and harass females. <laughs> Typical. Yes, it's funny. And the, the moths are, they, they don't like to spend time anywhere else. They don't, they don't spend time on any other vegetation. They sit in those flowers all day and then wait for nighttime to fall when they mate and or lay eggs and pollinate. So at least it makes finding them a little bit easier, I'd assume. Yes, yes. And I think that the floral scent is probably an important cue that, that helps them mate, actually. That, that, that's part of the ritual, if you will. Yeah. But, I mean, obviously, like, something like a Joshua tree is spread over a large landscape. I honestly don't frequent many places where yucca are native, but I would assume that spending all of your time and all of your offspring's time around a population would get genetically sort of isolated or at least reduce some of that genetic diversity, but that could also breed in a lot of, like, the mechanisms that make evolution possible. Is there evidence for that sort of you know, a yucca population gets established over here, maybe its phenology is different, and then the moths 
through some long distance dispersal find it and then they get sort of isolated is there any evidence of that throughout this lineage yeah so so what you're describing is allopatric speciation and we think that a lot of the plants at least have become new species this just through geographic isolation the moths definitely can disperse long distances and we've seen that in the eastern united states actually where uh, yucca filamentosa is a uh, native to the southeastern United States and has a pretty broad range, but we believe that humans actually transplanted them up here where I live, actually. We live in Syracuse, so they have a much broader range. The plants have expanded northward, and most of the time when you find them, they're in cemeteries and people's yards, you know, that kind of thing, but the moths have followed. And I wonder now if the moths that have expanded onto these plants aren't actually becoming isolated. We don't have clear evidence of that yet. Sure. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's always more questions to ask on the horizon. But that's extremely cool because in thinking about the specificity of this, and like I think you might have mentioned earlier, there's no pollination without these moths. And I used to live in New York. Yuccas got pollinated there. I now live in central Illinois where they're also not native. Yuccas are still getting pollinated here. So that is purely because the moths have been able to relocate with them. Yeah, so they're probably really great flyers. I've I've seen them take off. I've done a lot of nighttime observations of these guys. And you'll be watching a moth doing her business on a plant. And then for whatever reason, she decides to, to move on and She's up in the air column and gone. It's amazing. And that's also amazing just because, again, this is such a specific relationship, but it seems extremely flexible because, you know, the phenology and just the way a plant grows, say, in Syracuse versus Florida is going to be radically different. But here we have a case where the mutualists stuck together. Exactly. I think that the the plants would do fairly well for a long time on their own, though. They can reproduce asexually through uh, underground rhizomes and basically just wait their moths out. I mean, they live a long time, right? Right. Yuccas are hundreds of years, possibly. Wow. Even the ones in our garden, huh? (laughs) Probably, yes. That's incredible. (laughs) But it's cool to think about that. I mean, you get a, a single colonization event or maybe a handful of colonization events, whether that's intentional, uh, you know, with the hands of human or if it was a long distance seed dispersal event. But here's a plant that can persist vegetatively, grow its numbers, despite, you know, the fact that it's a clone uh, until said mutualist does or does not arrive. I mean, this is something that could potentially go on for centuries or more until the right set of circumstances bring them two back together. Exactly. Yeah, I think that that difference in life cycle, you know, the generation times could really help out. That's so cool. And now you mentioned a couple species of moths are doing this. I mean, are they close enough related? But other than where they lay their eggs on the plant, I mean, is it they all sort of converged on this similar strategy of having specialized mouth parts to pick up the pollen, deposit it, and then lay the eggs and wait it up? You know, they, they, it's all kind of converged very similarly. Yeah, I think that that likely what's happened is that the habit of pollination, of being a pollinator for these guys, evolved once in, in the ancestor of all these, and then they diversified after. And actually, we also have what might be at least three instances in which the moths have lost the ability to be pollinators. Oh? Yeah, they're called cheaters. Interesting. And where does that come into play? 
Cheaters are moths that instead of pollinating, what they do is they wait until the plant has developing fruit, and then they go in and they lay eggs. And so the plant's already committed to developing those fruit. It's past the time when they would normally drop them. Oh. And so that's why we call them cheaters, because they, they don't give anything to the plant, and they're purely parasites. They're laying eggs inside those fruit, and the larvae are feeding on seeds that would have been intact for, for the plant. They would have... Huh potentially little plants that is wild so you have this instance where you what we assume starts as a parasite comes into this perfect mutualistic relationship and then evolves back to being a parasite that is such a prime example of what we call the evolutionary arms race this give and take of trying to get as much with giving as little in return Exactly. So why those moths switch to being purely cheaters, we don't know. They actually, they, they can't pollinate because they don't have those specialized mouth parts anymore and their behaviors have shifted. So wow. why would you do that as a moth? Well, maybe it costs time to collect pollen or maybe you can't fly as far if you're carrying pollen if it's heavy. I mean, they can carry a lot of pollen. It's bigger than their head. Usually. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty wild. And so, you know, if you can reduce your costs as a moth and still gain the benefits of having some place for your offspring to feed, then why not? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even if it's a slight benefit. Yeah. What's surprising to me is that the pollinators exist at all. (laughs) (laughs) If if that's true, right? But those, those cheater moths are dependent upon the pollinators. So they're also, you know, tied up with all of this. Uh, this obligate mutualism. Yeah, I was going to say that really complicates issues when you're also reliant on quote unquote non cheating or behaving moths on right, top right. of it. <laughs> so you have to depend on both a plant and another moth to do your work for you. And yeah. then <laughs> then you can come in. Jeez, that's pretty intense. And it's really easy to see why, among other things, this system has captured your attention to some degree. But what I love about your work is it tells us so much about evolutionary relationships. It tells us so much about, you know, this parasite becomes mutualist sort of relationship. But then it also gives us insights into how these extremely strict mutualisms can evolve and behave in this big natural experiment that is climate change. Because again, you've got people moving plants around, the moths have followed and kept up, and then you get to see how all of this plays out. There's so many different applications for your work. Thank you. Yeah, I I have enjoyed very much working on these guys. Yeah, and it's so cool that, you know, you can be in Syracuse and study this system, either in a greenhouse or in, you know, your garden, potentially. <laughs> yes, yes, we have brought them all here to us. <laughs> That's very cool. So, I mean, what's on the horizon with this work? What are you thinking about in, in you know, the next few years in terms of questions and, and things you'd like to answer? Yeah, well, we're hoping to understand more about whether it's being a parasite or being a good pollinator that makes the moths diversify. And so far, it looks like actually being a parasite is going to probably be the answer. Uh, We have good evidence now that the moths can easily pollinate species they've never, ever encountered before and never would encounter in their lifetimes. Oh. But... When you ask if they can also be good parasites of those plants, usually the answer is no. Interesting. Yeah, and it's you were trying to figure out, and hopefully um, this summer we'll be able to work out a, a method to be able to do so, but essentially what we want to do is feed 
yucca moth larvae different species of yucca seeds and see if it's the seeds essentially. So so yuccas are pretty well defended plants. They have saponins in them, which is a soapy compound. Mm. It's something that Native Americans actually took advantage of. So you can make soaps out of these or, you know, if you have a upset stomach, you know, you can always eat a little yucca and that might <laughs> help clear you out at least. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Uh, for the moths, I think it might be bad news. So, you know, they might be locally adapted to the chemical site, uh, essentially, that are within their native plant. But if you put them on a non-natal plant, then I am suspicious that, that the chemistry might be affecting them. So we're hoping to test ideas about that. Like, what is limiting the ability of a moth to parasitize other species of yucca? Yeah, that's a fascinating question in and of itself. I'm really looking forward to whatever you find out there. <laughs> Yeah, we've got actually there are undergrads in my lab right now trying to extract saponins out of yuccas. <laughs> good luck. Yeah, no, it's working out pretty well. I'm excited, but nice. we don't have the data yet, so I can't answer the question about you know how different the chemistry is. Yeah, but that's what keeps this also very exciting. Is it's like okay, what's next year going to turn out for us? <laughs> exactly, exactly, and you know I'm still I'm still baffled by the uh, also the evolution of the cheaters and how that came about without completely destabilizing the mutualism itself, right? You know, mm -hmm. if, if a pollinator moth becomes a cheater, there's nobody around to pollinate anymore, right? Right. So why doesn't the mutualism just break down and everybody go locally extinct? And how did it come about with these cheater species that we have? Ooh. So, And I've just recently discovered a new cheater species that I'm pretty excited about. Wait, really? As in like new to science or new to the system? New to science, yeah. Congratulations. Thanks. Where about? Um, it lives in the southwest, and um, it's a cheater that has a humongous ovipositor or egg-laying device, and <laughs> it basically uses these fully developed yucca fruit. And what we thought was one species that used multiple species of yuccas is actually going to probably end up to be, well, it is going to end up to be two species at least, that actually specialize a bit more. Excellent. So it's like every time we find these generalists, if you look a little bit closer, then we start to realize that, oh, actually, that's that's more than one thing. Yeah, yeah. And again, just the amount of, of layers to unpack here and to try to figure out. I mean, it's it's super interesting, extremely challenging in some ways, but I, I'd imagine it's it's like that fun challenge of what is it, where, what can we find, where's that smoking gun, so to speak, but just the the level of, of questions, again, you can ask across multiple different avenues of, of scientific thinking and theories. Yeah, yeah, that's a neat thing about studying species interactions is that you can flip it around and look at both sides, right? Yeah. You know, so sometimes I focus more on the moths and then other times, like another project that we're thinking about is understanding basically species boundaries in a group of yuccas that live in Texas. So they all have very close ranges. Essentially, the species ranges abut one another. And we're trying to understand if the moths could fly across that boundary, what's maintaining species boundaries in the plants. And so we've been doing crosses in our garden here at campus. And and we're trying to sort out what's going on there. And initially, at least, it looks like they can hybridize. So we don't really, it's kind of a mystery since they overlap in flowering time and all this, that, that there should be opportunities for them to hybridize in the field, but they don't. So yeah. that's also 
on the horizon. I don't know if that'll go anywhere, but I think it's interesting. Yeah, that is super interesting because like you mentioned earlier, and as we just talked about just now, is, is these, these species boundaries between yuccas, whether it's in something that breaks down easily or not in nature, are, are pretty fluid and hybridization is extremely viable and possible. But again, if you completely rely on a single species of, of mutualist for pollination, and that really dictates where pollen is, is going, you know, that yeah. adds a whole new layer to uh, yucca diversity. Yeah. Although, you know, these moths, they only have a couple of neurons. I'm just, I always wonder, I'm like, are they smart enough to figure out that they're on the wrong plant? Because <laughs> they aren't when they're up here in our garden, but I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, how does it work in Texas? There's something special going on there. Right, right. What's, what's really going on upstairs with these little buggers? <laughs> Ah, fascinating. Yeah, I can see why this research has really attracted your attention. This is more complex than I even I realized. And uh, yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. So in thinking about all of this, obviously, you're looking at a lot of different yuccas. This is a plant podcast. Do you have a favorite species or group of yuccas or place to study yuccas that you can think of? Uh, I think my favorite yucca is yucca harmonii. It lives in Utah, and it's the tiniest of all yuccas, oh. I think. It's a cute little pincushion that Ooh. could be maybe, oh, I don't know. The big ones might be eight inches across. Oh, jeez. <laughs> right, that appeals to me. <laughs> yeah, I've always wanted to work more with that plant. I haven't yet, but yeah, I think it's my favorite. Nice. Well, there you go. You just pitch it as, what What are the little ones doing? <laughs> what are the little ones doing? I mean, yuccas are keystone species in deserts, right? They're charismatic. They're huge usually. But, but this little guy, I don't know, just appeals to me somehow. Yeah, uh, you're speaking my language too. But <laughs> it is funny to think of all the attention yuccas have gotten over, you know, unfortunate attention because of all the Joshua Tree issues that were going on. But, uh, you know, there's there's more than one reason to care about these plants and just the fact that they can teach us so much and are doing such amazing things with their pollinators. I mean, I think you've just really woken us up to the world of yuccas, pollination, and really strange mutualism, parasitism. So if people want to dive in deeper, learn more about your work and what your lab is doing, how do you recommend they find you? Uh, my website is a good way to start. Um, it's seagraveslab.syr.edu. Excellent. And I will put up links to that on the show notes for this episode. But Dr. Seagraves, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thanks for having me, Matt. Yeah, of course. Uh, you're welcome back anytime. So do keep in touch with all the cool updates that are coming out of your lab. All right, I will. All right, have a good one. Thanks. Cheers. All right. Fantastic stuff. That was a wonderful conversation. I hope you enjoyed hearing it again if you've been listening to the show for a while. But I also hope that all of my new listeners since 2019 that haven't had a chance to hear that conversation enjoyed it as well. Go check out Yucca Flowers. All you have to do is be very gentle. Look for ones that are recently open and pull apart the petals. The moths are far smaller than I realized, but they are usually not all that disturbed by you checking them out. Just be gentle. Again, you don't want to ruin the experience for them or potentially disrupt the pollination for the plant. And as we discussed, moths are following the yucca wherever they've been planted. So there's a chance you might see them even if you're not in their native range. Of course, check out all of the relevant links in the show notes for this episode over at indefensiveplants.com podcast. I will provide you with all the relevant links to Dr. Seagrave's work as well as all the other information you might need. Before I let you go, I do have a shout out to a bunch of new producers on this podcast. I thank them all for supporting the show at the producer credit level. So here's a big thank you to Dan, Alex, Ella, Patty, 
Southern California carnivorous plant enthusiasts, Elizabeth, Krista, Gary, and Axel. All of them signed up at the producer credit level, so they're doing the maximum amount they can to help keep the show up and running each and every week. But of course, I couldn't be doing this without all of my patrons over at patreon.com slash plants. They make this show possible. So if you're enjoying these efforts and you like listening to this show each and every week, consider supporting it. You can also pick up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch, or some stickers. Links to all of those can be found in the show notes as well. So once again, check out indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. Otherwise, just hit that subscribe button and tell your friends. But until next time, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.